morning. Um, and we, as, as I said in my prayer, and if you are new here, we've been going through a sermon series called Imago Dei. Imago Dei is the Latin term for image of God. And what we've understood is that God, in the beginning of time, when he created all things, he created man, mankind, male and female, in his image and in his likeness, which means we were put on earth to reflect and represent God on earth. And we were to fill the earth throughout the world, representing and reflecting him for his glory. That's our purpose. But what we're going to see this morning is that because we've been made in the image of God, we also have dignity, regardless of our position, regardless of who we are, what we do, all of us, because of the image of God in us, have dignity. So in our diversity, we also have dignity. Now, like I said, this might become controversial at points, as some of our sermons already have as we've gone through this series, but many of you can remember pretty fresh the last presidential election. And some of you, when you think about that, have emotional responses one way or the other about how that went. And if it wasn't the last presidential election, it was maybe the one before that, or for some of you who have been around a little bit longer, several presidents passed. When you think about elections, you think about certain things that get tied up with that, certain values that you have personally that you would like your president to reflect in his or her reign, or not reign because we're not a king here, but in their position of authority, you have certain Understandings about the way things people should think that you would hope that person would reflect as well. And the one thing I hope that you've seen, I haven't said it explicitly, so I'm going to say it now. I hope that you've seen as we've gone through this series that the Bible and the gospel does not neatly fit into one political party or another. It just doesn't. Um, there are things in each political party that the Bible lines up with, in each political party. And we as Christians need to be very diligent in looking into those things and being wise about who we vote for and at times have conversations. But all of that should be done with humility and with respect for all people. So let me just walk through a few things that we've sort of covered in this series as a refresher of why I say that before we get into our topic this morning. I'm just going to walk through a few things and how all of them relate to the fact that we are made in the image of God. And what you'll see is that each of these fall into a certain category of political parties and take priority in certain political um, sides of the aisle. Climate change. Some of you, as soon as you hear that term, you emotionally shut off and your ears close up. Now, climate change, you know, all the science out there that people seem to talk about and, and the, the emotions that get thrown around about it, maybe they're blown out of proportion, but there does seem, and I've listened to a few Christian scientists on this, not Christian scientists of religion, but scientists who are believers, um, who really seem to say there does seem to be some evidence that the climate is changing and that we have something to do with it as human beings. And as image bearers of God, we were put on the earth to steward and take care of the earth. 
So of all people, we should care if we're messing up the world. We should, okay? Now, I, I, I think it could be blown out of proportion at times, and we have to look at things with wisdom and with humility and with care and not make things emotional, but that's one area where you can see that as Christians, sometimes we might have the tendency to just shut off before we listen with humility. And that topic seems to fall along with one certain political party. Now, let's go to the other side of the aisle for a second. Guns. Freedom and personal protection. Again, we were told in the Bible to protect those who cannot protect themselves, and at times I think that can be personal protection. And so I don't think the Bible says yes or no, people should or should not have guns and protect themselves. I think there is some freedom there. But as you know, that falls into a certain political category. Now let's go back to the other side of the aisle for a second. We're going to go back and forth if you haven't caught on. Welfare. Taking care of the poor, helping people in need, giving supplies to uh, people who do not have for themselves. Some would say you're just assisting and helping people and enabling people, making people feel entitled. But what we know is that people really are in need, and poverty is an issue in our country and in the world. And as Christians, we should care. Not just shut off the conversation as soon as it opens up. Now let's go back to the other side. Abortion. We talked about this last week, and you know where I stand. You know where I believe the Bible stands on the topic of abortion. It's killing and taking the lives of innocent people. It's not a reproductive right. It has nothing to do with women's rights as much as a political party might want you to think that. Again, the other side of the aisle. I'm going to keep going. You having fun yet? Um, equality for all. We should care about that, right? But again, that seems to be emphasized by one political side. Equality for men, for women, racial equality, all of these things. We, as believers in God and in the image of God, should care that all people have equality in all places. Freedom. We believe in freedom. God has given people as image bearers freedom and freedom of conscience, and you cannot bind our conscience beyond the authority that God has given you. People are free to make their own decisions in many avenues of life. And when a, when a, when a political agenda gets in the way of that, it's crossing the line. Now, what about things like reconciliation and this word that some people love and some people hate, reparations? Listen, the Good Samaritan, the, the, sorry, not the Good Samaritan, the story of um, Zacchaeus is a story of reconciliation, repentance, and reparation. He paid back what he had taken. So we as believers need to at least be willing to listen and wonder, okay, what does it look back to pay people back? Somehow, some way, things that we have taken from them over the past 300 years. As believers, we should at least be willing to listen. Work, unemployment, and disability. 
Another political party really wants to push that side, helping people in all these situations, and one side wants to say, no, people need to work for their food. People need to get back out there as soon as they can. And, and so, we again, we can kind of shut down the conversation based on where we fall in line politically. Foreign affairs, you know, working with other nations and countries, we should care about other nations because all people are made in the image of God, and guess what? The USA is not God's kingdom. The world is God's kingdom, and he cares about all people in all places in the world, so we should too. Are you with me? Do you see how the Bible and the gospel and Jesus himself is not Democrat, and he's not Republican? I know he rode on a donkey, but he's not a donkey. Are you with me? All right. So I, I want you to be able to see this, that as a church that believes in the Bible, it's not clear cut. And we have to be able to listen with humility. And so as we come to this topic today, it's another one of those topics that gets, again, I was praying this morning with a few people who are involved with the service. And as soon as people walk outside these doors, the conversation is totally different. You, if you listen to the news, if you listen to uh, people at work, wherever you go, as soon as you walk out the doors, the conversation becomes different. But when you walk into these doors, especially at this church, we want to be grounded in Scripture. We want to lay all bias aside and say, Lord, what is the truth? Help me to lay my emotional, political, cultural bias aside to hear what you actually have to say in your word. And so as we come this morning to this topic of diversity and dignity, that's what we're going to try to tackle this morning. If you would, open your Bible to Acts 17 if you're not already there. That was a little bit of a longer introduction, but I think hopefully helpful and necessary. Acts 17, starting in verse 22. Now Paul, who is the apostle, is getting ready to speak the truth of God's word. To the people in Athens and the Greek, the Greek culture and the Greek thinkers were very logical. They loved debate. They loved to get up and, and share ideas and thoughts and even lecture and then challenge the lecturer and question, Q&A and all that kind of They loved to learn new things. That was the culture. And the Areopagus is where a lot of this kind of debate and discussion took place. You actually see in verse 19, before we start in verse 22, that they took Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus, it says, saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting? You see, they're very curious. They want to know, Paul, what, what is this you're saying? Something, come to the Areopagus. Let's hear it out. Let's, let's debate. Let's hear what you have to say. And so starting in verse 22, it says this in Acts 17. So Paul... Standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that, perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands 
as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as we come now to the preaching of your word that we have just read, would you help me to speak it carefully and truthfully and lovingly, gently, all by the work of your Spirit at work in me, and in the same way, help us to hear it truthfully and lovingly and gently and with humility. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so in this passage in Acts 17, what you see is that Paul speaking to the Athens at the Areopagus, really points out two or three main themes. First, that this, this statue God that they have set up in their places of, of worship, basically what we understand in Athens, they had a lot of gods. They were a polytheistic culture. They would worship many gods. And so they have a, a statue set up that says, to the unknown God. And in a way, they were kind of covering their bases. They, they, in other words, it was like, just in case we forgot one, you know, we want to make sure we worship him too. Um, so they had to the unknown God. And Paul, walking through, grabs that cultural feature and says, I'm going to use that to present the gospel. We talked about this a few weeks back, right? How, how you can identify things in the culture that can actually help you communicate the truth of the gospel to people in that culture. So Paul sees that, he grabs onto it, and he says, I'm going to use that to speak the truth of the gospel. So what does he say? He says, this, this unknown God that you're worshiping, I know who he is. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He made everything. And this very God is the one who made from one man every nation, on verse 26, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So what is Paul saying? He's saying there's one God, this God made everything, and this God made all mankind, every nation. God is a God who has created diversity. God has made us diverse, and he has spread us out over all the nations. You see that? All right, so God the creator has made us different and diverse, but also this God, we can know him in his word, but also it says we are his offspring. So what, do we, what does that mean? If the creator of the world 
who made everything, has made us as his offspring. What does that mean? It means we have dignity. So right here in this passage, what you see is diversity and dignity for all people. And that's what we're talking about this morning. That God has made us diverse, different in many different ways, but even in our diversity, we have dignity with one another. And so I'm going to actually switch the order of that. I'm going to talk about dignity first. What is it? What is dignity? And what does it mean for every human being to possess dignity? And then I'm going to talk about diversity in two different ways. I'm going to talk about active diversity, and I'll explain these, and passive diversity, and how even in our diversity, we still possess dignity as image bearers of God. Are you, okay, everybody tracking? All right. I actually really like this kind of stuff. This is like getting kind of intellectual and, and teaching, but I'm going to you know, try to, I'm going to preach at you too. Don't worry. All right. So dignity, what we see in Acts 17, as we already talked about, is that we are God's offspring. James 3 also points out an important thing. James 3, 6 through 10 says this. <clears throat> He's talking about uh, the, James, the writer, is talking about the tongue, the power of the tongue. Starting in verse 6, it says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be, be so. Now, what is James saying here? He says that the, the mouth, the tongue, is possesses all evil. It is a restless evil. And what does he use as an example of that restless evil? How does it play out in everyday life? Well, he says we, we bless the Lord with it. And that's a good thing. That's a good use of our tongue to worship, as we've done this morning already. But then we curse people who are made in the image of God. That's, that's the evil example that, that James is using. He's saying, of all things that our tongues can do, when we use it to rob people and dishonor people and disrespect people and curse people who are made in the image of God, that's one of the worst things you can do with your mouth. Now, how many of us in this church in the past week have done something of that kind? I have something... Can confess, I, I've found it pretty entertaining to watch certain YouTube videos of a certain president and then mock him with family members and close friends. That is a restless evil. And if you are taking part in anything like that, we need to repent. Because that's not only dishonoring another image bearer, it's dishonoring a person of authority that God has told us to respect and pray for. So I'm just saying personally, 
I've got things I need to confess and repent of. So if that's you as well, that's one specific example where you can too. Now, um, so what do we understand about dignity? What is dignity? I'm going to try to define this for you real quick. Dignity, we understand also, it comes to the, the etymology, that's how we get words throughout history. The etymology of dignity comes from kind of a Latin and Middle English phrase, which was translated worth or worthiness, to be worth something. And so if somebody is dignified or somebody possesses dignity, it means they have worth. They're valuable. And so often in times in culture, this is used to describe people of royalty. A queen or a king, they have dignity. They are dignified. They have worth. And what we understand is that all people, because we're made in the image of God, possess worth and value and dignity. There was a song um, I've gotten kind of, I, don't, I wouldn't say mocked, but it's been pointed out that I'm very aware of pop culture songs, but my pop culture songs are about 10 years dated, right, from back when I used to listen to some of these things. But there was a, there was a song that came around a few years back called Royals by a, a female artist. Her name was Lord with an E at the end. I don't know if that's actually her name or her nickname, but Royals. And the chorus of that song goes like this, and we'll never be Royals. We'll never be Royals. That's how the chorus starts out. And what we understand, being made in the image of God, is that that's actually not true. We're all royal. We are all image bearers of God himself. Offspring, as Paul said, offspring of the living creator God. You know what that means? Every single person on, human, on earth possesses royalty. Is royalty. As sons of God. Remember, all the way back to the first part of our series when we talked about purpose and identity, part of our purpose is that we were put on earth to represent the king, God, the creator king. And only in the cultural time, the pharaoh or the king was called the image of God. And so it was a cultural shock for people if they were to hear that all mankind was made in the image of God. What the Bible is saying is we're all kings and queens. All of us. We're all royal. Do you believe that? First of all, do you believe about yourself? Now, we understand sin, right? We're really good at that in the Reformed Church. And we're going to talk about that today. Don't worry. I haven't forgotten. But we're royal. You have dignity as an image bearer of God. And your neighbor, that's everybody else has dignity as an image bearer of God. Every single per person on earth is a royal image bearer. C.S. Lewis said this, there are no ordinary persons. You have never talked to a mere mortal. We joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal, everlasting splendors. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. Remember, the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw now, 
you would be tempted to worship. Every single person that you interact with might one day be a creature that if you saw them now, they would be so glorious in their restored state, you'd be tempted to worship them. Look around the room. We're talking about each other. Not only is that something to look forward to one day when we are glorified in heaven, but it's something to respect about one another and everybody else in the world. And so, this is why God says, show no partiality. God does not show partiality. Partiality is uh, prejudice or favoritism. Show no partiality to anyone, for God does not show partiality. Therefore, we should not show partiality to anyone. And he says this in a few different passages. Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Proverbs 24, 23, these also are sayings of the wise. Partiality and judging is not good. James 2, 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so from this first point, all people possess dignity as image bearers of God. So what does that mean? It means that we respect all people because they are made in the image of God. Now, here's the sin part, right? Because of sin, none of us deserve anything from God. We don't deserve life. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't even deserve to be here on earth. When we wake up in the morning, that's another gift of God's grace. We don't deserve it. We are not entitled to anything from God. But from one another, because we are made in the image of God, we deserve respect from one another. It's not our place to judge others and to withhold anything because of other people's sins. You see, we are to look at the image of God in people and respect and love all people because of that. Here's what John Calvin said, one of our favorite theologians here. He says this, The Lord enjoins us to do good to all without exception, though the greater part, if estimated by their own merit, are most unworthy of it. But Scripture subjoins us or um, commands us a most excellent reason when it tells us that we are not to look to what men in themselves deserve, but to look at the image of God which exists in all, and to which we owe, you see, we owe each other honor and love, remembering that we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but to look at the image of God in them, an image which, covering and obliterating their faults, should by its beauty and dignity allure us to love and embrace them. What is John Calvin saying? He's saying this, that we deserve nothing from God because of our sin, but from one another, we deserve honor, respect, dignity, and love. And so that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see and what I want to talk to you about is this idea of diversity. And so I want to look at this in two different ways, active diversity versus passive diversity. And I've come up with these phrases. I don't know if there's other phrases we can use, but this is kind of the way I've decided to describe it this week. And what I mean by active diversity is those things that we do that make us different from other people. 
When I talk about passive diversity, it's just who we are and who God has made us to be. That's our, it's nothing that we do or choose, but that's how God has made us. So there's active, you know, things we do that make us different, and then there's passive, things we don't necessarily do. It's just who we are. It's a part of who we are, and, and we're different in that way. And so we're going to look briefly at the active and then the passive. The active diversity, what are some examples of this? Well, the way people vote is active diversity. Things people do for hobbies, for fun, athletics, the way people eat and dress, the clothes that they wear, whether they have a job or if they don't have a job, the way people drive. All of these are things people do, right? And all of these are things, and there we can list a whole list of other things. All of these are things that at times we might look at and judge and feel more superior to others because they do it differently than us in all these categories. Amen? And so what the Bible is saying is regardless of whether people do things differently, they still deserve your honor respect because of the dignity of the image of God in them. And so another category, so those are all things, we can get into more detail on that, but I'm not going to. What I want to focus on in this point, in this act of diversity, is sin. I told you I was going to get to it. The way people sin is different. Right? And so I sin in different ways than another person might sin. My sin and my weakness in certain areas does not make me worse or better necessarily to a person who sins in a different way. So again, to bring kind of a cultural hot topic in, we talked a few weeks ago when we were on the topic of marriage about homosexuality. And in the church, homosexuality, we understand, is a sin. But unfortunately, some cultural Christian areas has made homosexuality, for some reason, some kind of ultimate sin. Where if somebody struggles with that or participates in that type of sexual sin, they're somehow worse than a person who struggles with heterosexual lust and pornography and cheating on their spouse or living with someone who they're not married to. Both are sexual sin. And one category does not have a right to judge another category based on their sinful struggles. Are you with me? Amen. And so, listen, they're both sin, but they're different types of sin. You can also get someone who really struggles with impatience. Someone like me, who gets kind of impatient with people. And maybe, um, uh, well, I don't think I won't get too many um, detailed confession this morning, but maybe you'll get it another time in a private setting. But I can get pretty impatient with people sometimes. And I can get pretty annoyed with people sometimes. But my annoyance with people does not make me better when the annoyance is some sinful habit of theirs that they probably should repent of. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? doesn't make me better because I can point out something in someone else that I feel like, why would somebody even do that? What is wrong with them? And yet in that very moment, what have I done? I've judged them. I've shown partiality to them. And I've become prideful in my own state of sin. 
And so regardless of people's sinful patterns and behaviors and sinful struggles and even sinful um, preferences, none of us have a right to judge anyone else. We are only to show love and respect. Now, does this mean that we avoid talking to people about their sin, that we avoid, you know, we just love and accept all people no matter where they are? Well, yes, we should love and accept all people no matter where they are, but we don't love and accept the sin, right? The Bible tells us as the church to, to confess to one another, but also to exhort one another, to point out people's sins in love so that they can trust Christ and see the work that Jesus is doing. And so in the church, part of what the church is up to is the process of restoration. Remember, the image of God has been broken. It's been shattered in people's lives because of sin. What God is doing is he is restoring people and redeeming people and making them new, being renewed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so what the gospel enables us and empowers us to do as the church is to look at fellow sinners and say, listen, here are my struggles. Here's what the Lord had to show me about my sins. And here's what he's doing. First of all, he sent Jesus for me. Without Jesus, I wouldn't have any hope. I'm way worse than I think I am. You think I'm bad? You don't know the half of it. But Jesus has come to forgive sinners like me, and he can do that for you. He came, he offered his life on a cross for the forgiveness of sins, and he has promised to give us the Holy Spirit who is renewing us back into the image of God as he first created us to be. That's a, that's a good message. That's a positive, encouraging message for real sinners, including myself. And this is what God is up to. And so he's restoring people. Ephesians 2.10, famous passage on God's grace. Uh, if you start in verses 8 and 9, it, is, it says, For it is by grace we have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, it's, our salvation is all God's grace. We have done nothing to save ourselves. No amount of goodness, no amount of showing up at church or praying or reading our Bibles, no amount of religiosity can make us right with God. He saves us purely by his grace. But then Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are his workmanship. Another way that can be translated is his masterpiece or his, his um, in other words, you know, handiwork. There it is, handiwork. It's this image of an artist who's making something. You see, we who are being restored into the image of God God is working with us personally to make us beautiful again. Leonardo da Vinci painted a very popular image of the Lord's Supper with all of his disciples on a convent wall, and he used an experimental uh, process. It was very new, and it turned out to be a really bad way of, of being preserved on this wall. So. For 20 years, there was a master restorer who worked on this piece by Leonardo da Vinci to try to bring back some of its former glory. And it took 20 years to complete the restoration process and millions of dollars. And what God is doing at work in us 
is way more valuable, way more important. Might take a little longer too. It's taken me a little bit longer than 20 years. And I'm sure it's taken some of you much longer than 20 years. And it's gonna take some of you others longer than 20 years. But it's a valuable work that God's doing in, in us. And so he's restoring people even in their active sin, in their active choices of diversity, he is working in all people, those especially who believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And then the last thing we see is passive diversity. That's the last thing I want to talk to you about this morning, passive diversity. And as I already said, passive diversity is those things that are different about us that we, we didn't have any choice one way or the other whether or not we were going to be different in those ways. God created certain people to look certain ways, to be a certain height, to, um, to be in certain cultures, where we live, where we were raised, the families we are a part of. All of those are part of our passive diversity. Think people, the places and the ways God has made us that make us different from other people. So what are some examples of this? Well, the, the, probably the one that flashes into most people's minds is the idea of ethnicity or race. Things like age, whether or not you're male or female, a man or a woman, as God made you. Certain abilities you have, whether you're special needs or you have certain gifts or physical abilities or mental abilities, you're the, the, the giftedness that God has given in some people in some other areas over others, Location, cultures that you lived in, the families you lived in, poverty. So some people are born into poverty and into a cycle of poverty. And we could say that some elements of poverty are an active choice that could, some of it overlaps into that first category of active diversity. But a lot of people who are born into poverty don't know how to get out of that. They need people to come in and help them, educate them, teach them and assist them out of poverty. So poverty, even things like hygiene, learning how to care for yourself, brush your teeth, wash your hands, all of these are part of, of where we were born and the cultures we were born in and even the families we were born in. Things that a lot of times we take for granted. So if you have somebody walk into um, a church building or an office place and depending on how they look or smell or whatever you might make a, a, a judgment on their character based on that when God says you know that's a, that's a person made in my image that you were to show dignity to regardless of what they look like or act like or smell like that's a person made in my image that you were to love and respect and value and so what do we want to understand? We want to understand that people, all people, are people. That seems pretty self-explanatory, but unfortunately our culture is not teaching us this. All people are people equally. I want to tell you a story of a, a couple who had several children and their fourth child was born with many disabilities. He was born with a condition where he basically had no brain. He had water in his skull and parts of a brain stem that enabled him to breathe, but he couldn't eat on his own. He was totally dependent on 
his parents to care for him and caretakers to care for him. While he was in the womb, he had a, a, a brother who was stillborn. And there were some there was some medical advice about possibly even ending the pregnancy. And this couple said, no, this this is our child. And they were made in the image of God. They are worthy of our love and our value, and then we're going to love them just like any of our child. When the child was born, the doctor said, this child probably won't live past a year. There's actually a facility where you can just drive down this facility, drop them off, forget it, forget you ever had them, and take care of your other kids. And they said, no, this is our child. We love him. He was made in the image of God. And so they took care of that child for 12 years. He lived 12 years longer than the doctors ever thought he would. And they loved him, and he made an impact on this family. It changed their entire doctrine of who they believed God to be. It brought them into a reformed understanding of God's love and grace and sovereignty. It gave them a deeper understanding of the image of God in all people, regardless of how God has made them. And that 12-year-old boy was my brother, Chris. And my parents chose to deliver him and keep him, and it's completely changed our family. And Chris has taught us more as a family than any of our other siblings probably have. Because he was a person made in God's image who now has no disabilities. Because he's with God in heaven rejoicing. And we'll someday get to see him as well. You see, if we were to see Crest today, kind of like C.S. Lewis said, if we were to get to see him today, we might be tempted to worship him. Because he's glorious and he's restored. And that's true of every single human being you come in contact with who God one day might restore into that same glory. Every single person has the potential to become a beautiful creature restored back into the image of God. So what are some things we can take from all this? Well, <clears throat> all people, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their status in society, regardless of their abilities or lack of abilities, all people are worthy of our love and respect because of the dignity that God has placed in them. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about some, some just terrible history that we have in the United States and in the, the realm of Reformed churches. We have a bad history. We have treated other people, and when I say we, I'm talking about the church, and I am including myself in a certain category of Caucasian people. We historically have looked at other people with darker pigment of skin and viewed them as lesser beings. And some of our ancestors, whether we know direct relationships or not, some of our ancestors actually considered people of darker toned skin as property. People who um, were made in the image of God, who were objectified and seen 
purely for what kind of value they could bring to a business rather than the fact that they were image bearers and royalty of God. And that was sin. And in many ways, repercussions of this still exist today and assumptions still exist today. Listen, I know, I warned you at the beginning of this talk, right, that some of this might rub people the wrong way. There is no way that 300 plus years of considering other people as less than human beings and merely as property just goes away in a matter of 50 years. It just doesn't disappear. There's still repercussions and there's still many prejudices and partialities that exist in people's hearts and minds. And all of us, listen, all of us in some degree have preferences and partialities and assumptions about other people because of the pride of sin in our own hearts. We're naturally drawn to people like ourselves. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but the bad part is when we exclude other people as lesser, that's where the sin comes in. And so I just want all of us to be able to listen to conversations as they happen. So I'm going to just throw a phrase out there. Black Lives Matter. And before you say any other thing about people mattering, please hear that. Because for 300 plus years, black lives did not matter. And that, that attitude of trying to point that out comes actually out of the civil rights. When, when young black men and others would walk around with signs that said, I am a person. You know why they had to say that? Because some people didn't actually believe it. And you know why people need to hear the phrase Black Lives Matter? Because some people still don't believe that. And I'm not saying all lives don't matter, police lives don't matter and all that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, for a long time, society didn't think those lives mattered. And God says they do because they are royalty whom I made in my own image. And listen, I'm not on board with the Black Lives Matter organization, not. I think it's unfortunate that a certain 501c3 organization robbed that phrase that the church should have gotten first. You see, the reason Racism exists, the reason poverty exists, the reason orphanage is, exists, are all a result of the fall and sin, but it's also partly because the church has not done its job in pointing out sins in society and caring for people that God, in his word, has told us to care about. All right, I'm done. <laughs> But listen, God can help us to listen with humility and gentleness and to care for all people regardless of how different they are from us. We are all made with diversity and dignity because of the image of God in us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love for us. As sinners, help all of us, including myself, to listen with love to people who think differently, feel differently, act differently, look differently. 
Lord, help us to respect all people with dignity as image bearers of God. We pray this by your grace. Give us humility. In Jesus' name, amen.